0: Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, we are joined by Tamar Camel, who sold his alternative data company, Quandl, to NASDAQ back in 2018. But before we get there, a quick word from today's sponsor of the show, Scribe Media
1: You know, there's an old expression that the best businesses are bought, not sold. Meaning, when an acquirer approaches you, you're in the catbird seat, right? You've got negotiating leverage because they're coming to you. The question is, how do they find you? Well, acquirers typically target an industry. They're either rolling up an industry or have a specific need in a specific sector and so they quickly search for who the leaders are in that industry. And if you've written the book on your industry, you bubble quickly to the surface. Now, what if you don't have time to write a book, or maybe you're not just a writer? That's where Scribe Media can help. Scribe Media is the book publishing company responsible for bringing the visions of entrepreneurs like David Goggins, Nikki Berua, and Robert Glazier to life. And this is a strategy our own guests at Built to Sell Radio have pursued. You may recall James Ashford was episode 335. He's the guy behind the company Go Proposal. Now, he wanted to get known as a thought leader in the accounting industry. And so we wrote a book called Selling to Serve. And it was a few months later that one of the giants in the accounting industry, Sage, noticed the book, noticed James's company and made him a healthy eight figure acquisition offer. Look, writing a book can put your company on the map and you get bonus points from me if you co-write it with your second in command, your general manager, so that some of the brand buzz and equity accrues to your 2IC or your general manager, making sure your business doesn't come too dependent on you personally. Now, you may be saying, well, well, I'm not a writer, nor is my second in command for that matter. Well, no problem. Scribe Media lets you speak your book and then they will write it for you in your voice. Let me say that again. They will write it for you. When it's time to sell your business, buyers will know exactly who you are, what you stand for, and the legacy they'll inherit from the company you've built. Visit scribemedia.com and book your free consultation today
0: a quick reminder if you're not subscribed to the podcast to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows and if you want to help support the show i would encourage you to leave a rating and review over on apple podcast leaving ratings and reviews truly helps our show grow and a quick shout out to ramon who left a wonderful review this past week on the podcast okay so now let me tell you a little bit more about Quandle because the business can be a little bit complex so let me provide an example to help you understand how this business works i want you to picture yourself as a wall street trader making millions from a single stock trade now you'd probably be willing to pay a lot for exclusive information Quandle offered data that provided traders With such an advantage. So, for instance, imagine you're trading based on a guess that American Express might acquire Capital One. You'd be curious to know when American Express owned private jets traveled between the Westchester Airport in New York and Capital One's headquarters in Richmond, Virginia. Now, this data wouldn't confirm an acquisition, but it would hint that a significant announcement could be coming. So Quandl offered subscriptions that let investors access private jet flight information for public companies. Now, this is just one of the examples of the valuable yet obscure information that Quandl sold. And for you to explain this business even more, I found a wonderful CNBC interview that they did with Tamer, which I have shared over in the show notes section, which can be found at builttosell.com. Now, as you're listening to today's interview, there's a few things I want you to look out for. I want you to look out for how to identify the hidden risks of taking VC money, how to compete with an industry giant, how to negotiate with a competitor without giving away your secrets, how to understand when to sell your company, and how to develop strong relationships with potential acquirers. Here to share with you the full story of how he sold his business, Quandl, to Nasdaq is Tamar Camel. Enjoy. Tamir Camel, welcome to Built
2: to Sell Radio. Well, thank you, John. It's delightful to be here.
1: Abraham and you, your partner, Abraham, started this business, Quandl. Can you take us back and tell us the sort of story of how this thing got off the ground? Yeah,
2: for sure. Uh, so a long time ago, getting on twelve or fifteen years ago now, uh, Abraham and I worked together uh, at a hedge fund in Tokyo, of all places, where we did a lot of quantitative analysis. Um, and you know, these days you might call what we did back then data science. That term didn't get used as much back then, but we were we were data scientists, especially me. Um, Abraham did a lot of trading as well. Um, and in that world, and in the worlds we were in uh, at that time, uh, data was a precious commodity, and it always has been, always will be. You know, on, on financial markets, um, information is is paramount, right? And so, you know, when you're making investment decisions, you need the best data and you need it structured and organized, and you need to be able to analyze it, and you need to be able to work with it um, effectively. And what we realized uh, at the time was that data on the internet, there was lots of it. When I say data, I'm talking about numerical data, you know, numbers that speak about the state of the economy, the state of the oil, state of inflation, the state of unemployment, that data is out there. There's tons of that data uh, available, there, but it's a mess. It's hard to find. It's hard to get into the system you want. You can you can pay third parties a lot of money to get that data for you. And so our brainchild at the time was a, a try and build some sort of consolidating platform that made all this data uh, available and accessible to to someone who wanted to use it. And we we had audacious ideas back then. We we used to pitch Quandl as being the Wikipedia for numbers. So we were going to do for quantitative information, what Wikipedia had done for qualitative information. We're going to have this one website where I don't care what you need to know, if it's quantitative in nature, we're going to deliver it to you.
1: So you and Abraham started, where did you guys get the startup capital?
2: Um, so we, we started with our own blood, sweat and tears. And then we did, uh, you know, a classic kind of angel friends and family kind of money although there were actually no friends and no family but um, you know <laughs> because and the reason for that by the way is I didn't want to have to go back to friends and family two years later and say I've lost all your money right so so acquaintances shall we say where 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 we had made made a positive professional impression in the past and they were willing to bet twenty thousand dollars or forty thousand dollars on on you know what we were what we were up to and we, we must raise. I don't know three or four hundred thousand dollars in that way, which you know for 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 two people with a couple employees that that you know that lasted you know we got a couple years. So did
1: did you and Abraham just split the equity fifty fifty and then raise some money? Yeah, to the agent? almost.
2: I had I had done a lot of work or some work on the product before Abraham jumped in, so that left me with a slightly larger share than he had, but okay. we were essentially. Very close to fifty-fifty.
1: Got it. And then I'm assuming, like, can you roughly estimate how much of the company you would have given up in that angel round?
2: Um, how much do we give up in the angel round? Probably, maybe twenty percent. Um, oh wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, it, you know, we we gave up plenty more along the way for the record. Um, but but at that point, we still probably owned eighty percent of it.
1: Okay. So you've got some cash and I have to ask, like when I think of data and investors and their appetite for data, in particular institutional investors, I go straight to Bloomberg. I go to these, this is the 800 pound gorilla. They got all the information. If it's worth having and there's a market for it, it's in the Bloomberg terminal and they paid a truckload to subscribe. So like, how is what you were envisioning different or going to compete with? the 800 pound gorilla in the market, Bloomberg.
2: Well, so let me talk about theory and then the reality that smacked us in the face on that front. (laughs) We're right on the money here. Uh, So we were on this mission to, we used to say this a lot, we're going to democratize the data world. So we were going to make it so that Bloomberg couldn't have this monopoly anymore. uh, And we were going to make it so that anyone could buy and sell data on our platform. Um, The the reality we ran into is that, so I mentioned this analogy with Wikipedia, the, the big difference between numerical data and qualitative information is that, qualitative information, so the, Wikipedia has an article on the history of Rome. Somebody had to write that article once. If I want to have a wiki site with the current price of oil, somebody has to update that every day or every hour or every minute. Right, so there's a it's a way more difficult to maintain a, an article or a piece of content on a on a, something as dynamic as data because it changes constantly. Otherwise, it's useless if it's not being updated. It's, it's, and so, the, you know, this you, the democratized utopia we envisioned where everybody's uploading data it just doesn't. Nobody nobody has time or inclination to volunteer and update you know a hundred million time series you know, that Bloomberg has. So So the reason, you know, Bloomberg is so successful and so valued is because they do all this. It's all there in one place. So th- this actually segues nicely into our, you know, how our business evolved, because we it became apparent to us that a the, the effort to to, you know, achieve this Wikipedia for numbers is probably impossible. You can't do it by some bot scraping the internet for technical reasons. It's just too difficult a technical problem. And you can't crowdsource enough people to do all this work. It's just too much work even to crowdsource. Uh, so we had to narrow our ambitions. And and we we're, were bumping into Bloomberg more and more, by the way, at that stage where we're trying to sell something to somebody. And they said, well, we already got Bloomberg. Well, you know, you know, we're good, <laughs> right? Even though I had maybe I had some aspects of what we were doing were better than Bloomberg. But you know no one's going to you know very difficult to get someone to unplug the bloomberg in favor of your thing cuz it's a little bit cheaper or has a little bit better api right um so we realized if we're going to compete with someone like bloomberg and others big gorillas in the in the space we better be offering something they don't have and this is when we landed on this idea of alternative data and this is a term used a kind of well understood today in the financial market, but alternative data is data that is relevant to a professional investor, but doesn't come from from the financial domain in the first place. And in the world we live in today, there's data kind of being created everywhere all the time. It's ubiquitous. It's coming It's a byproduct of things that are happening in every company. I often say if you could just tap into every database in the world in some magical way, you could know the state of the global economy in real time. You could know there's nothing you can't
1: know. So when was the last time you had an employee make a mistake that ended up impacting a customer? Stop mistakes before they happen. With VidGuide, your video-based instructions pop up directly into the software your employees use. From Salesforce to QuickBooks and from Bamboo HR to HubSpot, if you use it to run your business, VidGuide integrates with it. As a built-to-sell listener, you can grab a free 14-day trial at vidguide.com free. Well, there's one example that I was reading about in prep for this interview. I think it was an article about Quantum Financial Times, and it described the use of aircraft lease information as a predictor of m and activity. Yeah. Can you walk us through how aircraft leases has anything to do with m and or how it would be sort of a, 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 a canary in the coal mine or bellwether to m yeah, a Yeah,
2: it's a great example. It's a good, it's great example of alternative data. So here's the thing with how that works. Um, there's all these airplanes flying around, and they're all, they all have transponders on them, and they're all broadcasting exactly who they are and where they are. They're doing that by law. And that data is in the public domain. It's radio waves. So that data is being picked up by transmitters all over the world. And so if you kind of work with the right people and cobble together the right databases, you can actually track the movement of every plane in the world at all times.
1: That's kind of freaky. Yeah, it is. is
2: (laughs) Now, secondly, if you happen to know who owns these planes or who leases these planes, you can start inferring things about business activity. So, you know, if you see um, um, a plane going from a a small city that happens to be the headquarters of a big company and it's going to another small city that happens to be a, a headquarters of a big company that competes with that company, right you can start saying oh these guys are having some pretty high level discussions
1: about something right that's so cool and would you know that it's a private jet versus a like a like a United yeah. flight could you, would oh, yeah, you know yeah. that so the
2: thing is the,
1: the, that's crazy so it's,
2: it's, it's yeah it's pretty neat it's noisy it's never definitive right because you don't know who's on the plane you don't know if it the CEOs flying over or you know you don't know but
1: but if it's the private jet, you'd it's assume it's someone. Somebody consular.
2: important, right? So so here's the thing with that particular data set. It never tells you anything definitive, but it gives you some hints, right? So if you're a professional oh, analyst wow. watching a particular space and you already suspect that something's happening, this might put you over the edge to say, aha, I knew it. Something's going down here, right? Um, but but just zooming out, this is a great example of alternative data because you're not you're not using any data that derives from the company or from Wall Street or from the government. It's, it's not illegal. No, You're not stealing no, this. It's exactly, all in the public. Exactly. Pay. And so that's the so that data. We actually offered that um, on, on Quandl. And, and the beauty of that is all my competitors that I was trying to – whose lunch I was trying to eat – they don't have that. Bloomberg can't offer that. S and P didn't have that. Refinitiv didn't. But presumably they
1: could have, though. Again, to your point, it's in the public domain. It's there's no way you could protect that if you Quantle, offered it. Presumably, if it was a sexy enough product, all the Bloomberg customers are asking for it. They could have knocked what it off, it? couldn't they?
2: Yeah. No. There's not, I, and same goes. You know, we have a, we have a bunch of of really smart, innovative data products. And you're absolutely right that they could have. And, you know, we'll probably get to this. But one of the reasons we eventually got acquired was because we had proven to the world that we were damn good at finding these data sets because you have to like these things don't fall in your lap. You have to go out in the wilderness and find this data and figure out how am I going to make this data relevant to a professional investor? That is not an easy thing to do. Most data is just crap. It's noisy. It has nothing to say. You have to be statistically rigorous. You have to have understanding of markets. You have to be able to organize and structure it. So it's, I'm not suggesting for a second that we're the only one who can do that, but we were damn good at it.
1: Yeah, I love this. This is so cool. Okay. And so the business model evolved from this, my words, not yours, harebrained idea of Wikipedia for data yeah. to eventually a, a, a really... a a competitor to Bloomberg offering alternative data sets that's not, that were not available in Bloomberg and some of the other financial information products. Okay. And so the business model there is selling, as I understand it, subscriptions effectively to these institutional investors. Walk us through that model.
2: So, so um, yes. So another nice thing about data is it, it for, for an investor, it becomes addictive. If you're telling an investor something that gives them an information advantage over the market as a whole, it's invaluable. It's incredibly powerful, right? Because it leads directly to better investment decisions, which leads directly to more profit. Um, so our, our model was actually, we, I used to joke, we're, we're a bit like a drug dealer because we want to get our customers hooked on our data. And when they're hooked, we know we're going to get that renewal. And so we, we had very low churn. The only time we'd have churn is when circumstances beyond our control would make the data less effective, which sometimes happens. Right? I can talk about examples of that.
1: Was your was your product at the data set level? So I I want to subscribe to the to the private jet uh, feed, but I don't want the oil price feed, or was it like an no, all in one
2: la carte? So you 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 buy what you need, and the reason for that is a, a we charged a lot of money for, for how much you charge. Uh, price points could range anywhere from. Twenty-five thousand dollars a year to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. My favorite example: wow. we once sold a data set where we would give you one number a day, and it it, would, it was one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year for one. <laughs> what was the number? That's sixteen bits of data. Um, it was an an amazing number. It was how many how many Tesla vehicles were hitting the road every single day. When no back when nobody knew.
1: and nobody paid you 120 grand for that.
2: Well, you know what they made ten times that on on what they could do with that information. How? Well, because the 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 in I, I guess we're 2016 or 2017. Um, nobody had any idea how good Tesla was doing. No one had any idea. Were they killing it? Were they selling lots of vehicles? Were they not selling any? Nobody knew. We knew. Um, we, we we it's another it's an interesting. Other example of alternative data we knew by because we partnered with insurance companies. So we went to insurance companies and said, look, I don't want to know any personal information about anyone or anything you do. I just want to know how many policies you're writing on Tesla vehicles. Just tell us that. Just tell us one number every single day. How many policies you write on? Tesla. And would they give you that for free? No, of course not. No, no, no. We shared, we shared the revenue with, with the owners of the data for sure.
1: Got it. And for that Tesla product, did you have one customer? We had had, had a bunch of customers. Okay. Did customers ever ask you for exclusivity? Sure. How did you deal with that?
2: Um, There's nothing stopping us from giving a customer exclusivity. So the way we do this is we would have some, for any data that we offered, we would have some idea of how many sales we aspired to make and thus how much money this data set would generate for the company. If someone wanted exclusive and they wanted to, you know, kind of buy all 12 licenses we intended to sell,
1: no problem. So you would charge them basically the entire projected yep. revenue for that, was, that data set? So that that, that
2: sort of logic. I mean, we're, we're a pragmatic small company trying to add revenue, right? So if someone gets really excited about a data set and they want to pay pay up for exclusive access to that, I mean, that's a win for us too, right? Because then that's, you know, less sales and marketing we have to do, and one big check uh, and we can mo- get, sort, of, sort of move on and work on the next data set.
1: How did people pay? Were, was it was it all up front? Was it monthly over time? Like, how, What was the cash flow of the of the Depending business?
2: on the data set, we, we would offer annual or monthly payment um, structures.
1: Most customers- Annual was up, paid up front? Yeah, right? oh yeah. How come you needed money because I understand you went through a series of, of uh, VC venture capital raising. I think in total, I read somewhere you, you raised a total of $20 million or $17 million. It's, a, it's a significant amount yeah. of VC money. Yeah. I'd be curious, like, what, what triggered the need? Because from what I'm hearing you say, uh, at least from a layperson's perspective, I feel like it, it's a cash flow positive business. You're identifying data sets. You're buying access to them, maybe on a revenue-sharing agreement. You're getting customers to pay up front, at least some of them. So why the need for, for, for VC money? What was driving that? Um,
2: so th- there's two things that are expensive to do. One is there is a, there's a substantial investment you need to make in the technology platform to deliver this data. If you're selling data, like the one I – you know, if someone's paying you $120,000 for one number a day, you had better deliver that number at 8.02 a.m., Every single day and never screw that up. And when you're doing that, you've made that promise to, you know, hundreds of customers across thousands of different data products. You need some seriously good technology to keep that promise. So, so there was a non-trivial technological component to what we did. Secondly is the data science that has to be done to make these immediately actionable data sets available to customers is also non-trivial. There's a lot of data, what we call data wrangling, sort of grunge work Get the data, make sure the data gets in from the customer, from the partner every day. Then we have to clean it and validate and verify it. And there's a ton of R and D that goes on to find a good data set. I put it to you that for every data set we released as a product on Quandl, we would have examined 50 to hundred data sets and put them through a process because it's a needle in a haste that most data doesn't tell the market anything it doesn't know already.
1: Interesting. Okay. So there's a ton of upfront work, which needs to be financed. Walk us through the financing journey that you went through. You mentioned the 300 grand for 20% for, you know, the family, friends and family round or acquaintances, we'll call it. Then just walk us through what other financing the company had.
2: Um, So in, we, we, we raised a little bit of money, like I say, from the from the angels. And then we raised about half a million dollars from a pseudo institution in Toronto in, I want to say, 2012-ish, 2011, 2012. Um, and then we went to the Valley in 2013. And we uh, we pitched a lot of VCs. And we told them, we were at th- this point, we were still telling our takeover the world Wikipedia for data story. Um, and... We eventually got some interest from a couple VCs uh, in 2013 and eventually uh, closed a $5 million round with um, August Capital. And um, on the back of that money, we really got to, we were able to accelerate things. But at this point now, remember, we're still chasing the audacious dream of Wikipedia for numbers. It was somewhere midway a year into that where the reality of the, you know, the overly ambitious, that overly ob- objective set in. And we kind of, you know, I don't, you can call it pivoted if you want. I, th- I call it zooming in. We, we got more focused, right? Um, and by the time we went out for a series B, which was 2015, we had not only had we adjusted the business model, but we had traction. We had um, customers buying data off the platform and we had third parties wanting to be on the platform and this is a huge break breakthrough for a um for an aspirational marketplace because when you have action on both sides when you have people who want to consume the product and suppliers who want access to those people you're in a good place and it was on that story that we raised series b in uh in 2015 and that was turned out to be the last raise we would do uh before uh Before we sold the business, I guess three and a half years later
1: okay, so with regards to the the five million dollars that was led by August capital um just walk us through if you could uh you know, what, what you provided them. I mean, do they have preferred shares? Was there any liquidity preferences? Maybe just anything you can share as it relates to that raise? Um,
2: no, both August Capital and our subsequent partner, uh, Nexus Ventures, were very straightforward, very fair, no nonsense, no silliness, very clean term sheets from both of them, um, where they just took an equity piece uh, in exchange for the money. with no uh, How big an equity from. piece
1: did to- How big an equity piece did they get?
2: Um, I think we gave up a third of the company in series A and probably another 20% in series B, something around there.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess one of the things that I wanted to ask you, just given how much experience you've had raising money, institutional and and kind of acquaintances and so forth, is, is kind of what did you learn in the process of building this company, as it relates specifically to uh, raising money, and I guess I'm asking this because a lot of the listeners of this show are on the fence when it comes to would I rather own a big slice of a small pie or a small small slice of a big pie? And they go through, I think, you know, machinations, iterations of that where they're like, you know, what I, I want to be the master of my own destiny. I want to own 100% of the shares, and if that means I I, I grow a smaller company, so be it. And then other times, I think they they hear about these big capital raises and they think, man, I you know I should I should be more aggressive. I should be raising money and 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 and, and you know shooting for the fences, so to yeah. speak. And so I'm asking you, to the extent you're comfortable sharing, sort of like lessons learned or things you might do differently or ways you might approach that process differently, if you could kind of rewind the clock and 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 sort of have a mulligan. Um, so. We had, you know, we
2: had superb um, investors. Trip Jones at at August Capital and Naren Gupta at Nexus were just superb supporters of our business. I mean, they're richly insightful, um, intelligent, um, always helpful. But in spite of all that, there is still a pressure that comes from having professional third party institutional unemotional investors. As part of your business, at the end of the day, um, you got to perform and you got to deliver, um, and I think that's that's kind of the the, the trade off you make um, when you when you choose to take venture funding. You know, and and I think there's always a little bit of grass is greener syndrome, right? It always, you know, when you're, you know, for for me, having gone through a, a, a venture experience. I do see the appeal of bootstrapping a business and saying, look, I, you know, I'll never take another dollar from anyone. I'm going to bootstrap this thing and it's going to be my lifestyle business and I'm going to call 100 percent of the shots. And, you know, and and, and but then there's all a totally different pressure that comes with that because there's, you know, could be zero dollars in the bank account. Right. That, that And you got you better make your payroll next month. Right. So, I, you know, I, I've only been on one side of that fence. Um, and like I said, I was blessed with two exceptional uh, venture capitalists as partners so that helps a lot
1: right it i, I 'm not a VC uh, i don 't play well on TV or the internet <laughs> so i'd be curious to know your your thinking here but from what a little I know about the VC world there they're sort of uh, again a swing for the fences kind of community so if you take ten investments uh, you know one of them is is a is a huge home run Maybe one or two are kind of what they call "walking dead," which they're never really gonna be huge home runs. They're they're just not, but they're not dead. And then seven or eight are dead on arrival. They you know they they run out of cash and they get written yep. off. Um, what my understanding of VC investing is that you know to be in that first category, the kind of home run hit the lights out. It needs to be like for every dollar they put in, they get like a hundred dollars out or a thousand dollars out. Did did you feel that pressure to to deliver crazy returns to be that home run that Cinderella story for the VC? Did you feel that pressure to kind of swing for the fence? Yeah, for sure,
2: and and um, but they they make no, you know, I, I remember Tripp telling us the day you know the day he made the investment. He goes, "This is what this is what we're looking for." So so it's not
1: like were, what was he? What was he?
2: Like, he, 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 like they that in all their their investments, that's and for exactly the reason you note, right? Seven out of ten of their investments are going to give them zero. So if they want to return twenty percent on the fund, they better have a few ten x's, right? Um, so there was there was never any ambiguity about that from day one, and and so for and so of course, yes, for sure, um, there's this pressure to swing for for the fences. And I'll tell you an interesting kind of uh, conflict of interest is too strong a word, but uh, imperfectly aligned incentives is how I would describe this. At one point with Quandl, we were doing really well to the point that, you know, we could approach an exit, which we'll eventually talk about, which would leave myself, my partner, my employees, my investors, Very happy. But it wasn't, it wasn't a, you know, unicorn kind of outcome, a 10 or 20x. And so I'm sitting here as CEO and I've got some, you know, some decisions to make about just strategically how aggressive do we, do we be? Do we kind of take risks that would possibly, um, diminish the current value of the company in going for that home run? At the risk of maybe having less than we have now, or um, do I be a little bit more conservative, preserve the value that I've created? And the truth is, um, the VCs would rather you you know swing for the fences. And if you're a zero, you're a zero. But for me, obviously, um, I, you know, I don't have the diversified portfolio of ten or twenty investments, right? I have one, and so um, you know, I say all this because that's the reality. Uh, I, in a day-to-day, they were, and I think this is best practices in, in VC land anyway, but not all VCs do it, is they have, they have a founder's first mentality. So Trip Jones especially, he had my back, he had Abraham's back all the time, right, and, and, and was supportive of the realities on the ground. And he knew very well the dilemma I had with, you know, do, do we shoot for the moon or, you know, we contend with having hit a double and, and so anyway, so that, but yes, so to your point, yes, it's, it's a thing, right. You take VC money, um, you got to swing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Can you walk us through an example of that in your business where the safe and prudent thing to do would have an X and the, the swing for the fences, decision would have been why
2: well so the, the I, i'm not sure what the swing for the fence is why but here's the thing we when we s- s- built this alternative data business um it was clear that this thing could make tens of millions of dollars like
1: in revenue or profit pardon oh revenue, revenue in revenue, revenue, revenue uh, okay.
2: maybe, maybe 10 20 30 maybe maybe 50
1: um where were you at the time, roughly, that you're having you're, – you're at this epiphany? How much revenue? Ballpark?
2: Oh, when we realized that how big it could be, we're probably at a few million
1: dollars, maybe five. Right? Okay. So you're two, three million in revenue and you're like, this thing could be 10, 20, 30 million. Yeah. Oh,
2: yeah, for sure. But but at the same time,
1: we realized it's probably not going to be
2: 500 million. And that is a problem for for a VC because you really – you want if you want a, a multi-billion dollar valuation – There's got to be hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue, either in reality or a pathway there. Right. So so the dilemma was, look, we built a good niche business. So the question that we had was, look, do we you know, is, should we kind of say, well, whatever, we got that, but really we should be trying to rethink everything to find a, a, a business that can do $500 million and, you know, make, and then this, what we make now becomes a rounding error on that. Um, now, as it turned out, we didn't, we, you know, we didn't go chasing that unicorn. We just kind of stuck to our knitting and, and grew this business as, as best we could. And then of course, eventually we led to a, an outcome, an acquisition, you know.
1: Yeah. Let's talk about that. So how, you know, I'd be curious though, sort of, it was there sort of some triggering event that, that caused you to decide to sell the business or a a straw that broke the camel's back? So, um, it was really uh,
2: the, the macro environment. So in 2018, we'd reached a point where what we were doing, this alternative data idea was, uh, was kind of hot. There was a a lot of investors were excited about it. That is to say professional money managers were excited about it. Um, And all the incumbents, bar none of the big incumbents, were all spinning up alternative data divisions. They were all jumping on this bandwagon, and rightfully so, because there's something there. But at that time, we were... Perceived as the thought leaders on the space. We probably were the thought leaders on the space. I mean, not that we're not we certainly weren't the only small company pioneering this this um this space, but we were one of them and we were we were well respected and 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 perceived as one of, if not the best, at doing this. So when you have five incumbents realizing that they need to be this in the space, and one startup that is kind of way ahead of the curve on this, that's a great environment to try and get acquired in. And we were not oblivious to this. And so in 2018, we, we kind of started what, what I've described as, a, as, a, as the flirting or mating rituals with all these incumbents where we would start having conversations with them about our desire to kind of maybe work more closely with them, uh, to maybe leverage their reach, leverage their distribution channels, and they can leverage our data science abilities and our product offerings. Um, but it was it was really a mating ritual. It was a flirtation thing where I was really looking for an expression of acquisition interest, and they were trying to see, look, are, can we just buy these guys? But
1: it, yeah, how big were you at this point? Like, what's how, just proxy for size of some sort? It,
2: well, I mean, we're about. I, the only thing I say on that is we're about eighty people, seventy, seventy-five people. I can't talk about the revenue numbers or, or or that sort of
1: thing. That's okay, but but that'll help people get a proxy for, uh, for size of company. That's that's great. So you're roughly seventy-five employees, and you're doing these, uh, these sort of, in your own words, flirtatious conversations. Love that with the big data provider. I mean, the big. Yeah. Data providers. So I'm thinking like it's the ones I'm aware of are like Thomson Reuters and Bloomberg and NASDAQ. And those are the kinds of players you're having these sorts of. Exactly. Now, again, when I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking, wow, those are delicate conversations. And again, a lot of our listeners would be terrified to go and approach their giant 800 pound gorilla in their industry and start having these conversations because they'd be fearful of revealing too much about their, you know, proprietary sort of secret sauce to their giant competitor. How did you think about those conversations so that you could, you know, look attractive where, without giving away right. the proprietary data or the, inform- you know, the, the information that they could use to compete with? Yeah. So...
2: You know, I I believe, I mean, I can only speak about my space, but but I've seen this at least in the two or three industries I've worked in in my career. Um, The devil is always in the detail. So I could spend the next hour and a half or two hours telling you everything I know about the alternative data business, everything I've figured out, and your work is still all in front of you if you want to build a Quandl Competitor. Right, it's all about the execution. It's all about the all the dumb little things that you encounter day to day. How do you get people over the line to give you their data? How do you, you know, how do you set, market the thing? How do you, what do you, what do you put on paragraph three of your marketing brochure? Like, it's just there's so much details you have to get right. Um, I so I just simply wasn't worried about that. I, I think like I've been I've been in business for 25 years or something like that. You know, when I was when I, we were in the hedge fund world, we'd have investors come in and say, oh, tell us about your strategy. I tell them everything. I'll tell you everything because all your work is still in front of you. I mean, you got to do the 60 hours a week for five years and then you'll have what we have. Right. So. So, this is my philosophy on this. I could be wrong, or maybe it's only true for, for my industry or my space, but that's my life experience on this. So, I wasn't worried about it. Um, I built relationships, by the way, in, with all these firms, you know, you see, you bump into them at all the conferences over the years, and you see, you get to know the people, right? And, you know, you have a, you have a beer with them innocuously, you know, and you, you know, it just, so, so it was a very natural progression to start you know, talking a little bit more about partnerships and and um, and not really, what well, certainly wasn't intimidating because I had nothing to lose, right? There was no. It was just you know, hey, let's talk about this, right? But, and we, you know, it's not like we hadn't been talking about this stuff. You know, you're always talking to people in your space. Oh, what can we do together? What you know, how, what, something symbiotic. So yeah, it was it was quite natural.
1: So these conversations about what could we do, how can we partner together, how can we work more closely together—these are all sort of veiled yeah. <laughs> or you know code yeah. for "Would you like to buy us?" At what point did somebody f- see through that veil and say, "Tamer, are you looking to get yeah. bought?"
2: Well, that, so that was a yeah, that was a pivotal moment actually. I I went went for drinks with someone from NASDAQ. Um, We had a bunch of drinks and by maybe it was three drinks in um, that uh, he said, look, crazy idea for you, Tamar. But what about, you know, maybe think about an acquisition. And of course, I was like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. You know, let's, you know, but he knew, I knew, you know, we we all knew what was going on there. Right. And that and that and then it started for real. Like that's when, you know. Few weeks after that, I think he, you know, we had maybe a call, or I think he maybe came to Toronto. We started talking seriously about we. You know, once once he once he sort of crossed that line, then you can really start talking, Um, and we very quickly started talking about numbers. I think he, you know, he understood our business pretty well already because Nasdaq was already kind of in that space.
1: Um, And what were the numbers he was most interested in in knowing? In those early conversations revenue churn those sorts of numbers like what other data points was he yeah in? it,
2: it, it was the kind of the the big picture numbers right that how many customers how, how much revenue how you know how many data sources and and most, very importantly how how much to buy you right we, we we started talking about that number quite early in fact we before we did anything formal i think we went back and forth for months on just that number, you know, how, what's the sale price for quantal What's that number going to be, right? Um, d- yeah, I mean, to put it in perspective, we, you know, I had, I think I had that, those drinks would have been in the spring, in March or something, and we weren't into a formal acquisition process till September. Like it was sometime in August that we actually, they actually sent us a letter of intent. Uh, and then we, then we got into the nitty gritty through the fall
1: how did you stick handle those conversations around what's it going to take to buy Quandl? Like, was, did he make the first move? was, did he ask, okay, well, what do you want? Yeah. From? I,
2: you know what? It was, a, it was an unoriginal negotiation is in that he said a low number, we said a high number. And then, you know, he went up a bit, we came down a bit and we uh, eventually arrived at uh, at a number.
1: Um, and, and what was informing your number? Like, were you looking at, SAS company benchmarks or information company benchmarks or like what was the benchmark that you were pointing to, saying it's worth? X. Honestly,
2: honestly, I was looking to maximize the number. I I, 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 was, you know, I had determined that it was a great time to sell. I wanted to sell the company. There was, I mean, another thing to keep in mind here is so I'd been working what, eight, nine years on this thing, and as every one of your listeners know, entrepreneurship is hard as hell, and it's hard as hell every single day. Right. And when you have been doing that for nearly a decade and there's light at the end of the tunnel, I wasn't going to let that I was going to get out of that tunnel. I was going to get to that light. And so um, I I was I, I didn't have, I was just going to how high can I get these guys and whatever, whenever we top out, I'm going to do it. Right. I'm going to do do it at that price. Um So that's how I went about it. I was I was definitely in a mindset that here's an exit opportunity, you know. It's going to be a good outcome for everybody. So, my job is to get us there.
1: So, did they make the first move over over kind of casual conversations? Like, did they say, well, what about X? And then you went back with Y, or did, did the inverse happen? Did you start with no, Y? No, so went I think.
2: I, I, no, you know what? We might have said the very first number. I, I have this recollection that the very first time um, NASDAQ came to visit us, at the very end of the meeting, um someone asked one of my colleagues uh, what you know what what's the number one of our advisors actually what you know what might that number be and we we had been expecting that and he planted a number uh, he said a number and and I, I actually remember he the reaction was he he kind of nodded solemnly and he said that that could be difficult, but I'm gonna see what I can do right? And so that was kind of how it started. And then they came back with their number was like one third of our number, (laughs) right? And it was what they came back with. And then, you know, off we went.
1: Yeah. Um, How So theirs was a third of your number. How close in the end did you get? I know we can't talk about the actual number, but how close did you eventually get to the number that you'd thrown out in that meeting?
2: Um you know what we we came very close to meeting halfway between those their first number and our first number in the end Interesting, interesting. um and like i I, i've have i've done precisely one deal in my life so i don't know if that's kind of how it always goes or that was just the way it went for us but um yeah that's what happened and yeah
1: how did you know there was more in the tank so for some people uh, you, you know, when you're that far apart, the, t- the temptation is to, to kind of cut bait. And so there's like, there's no way this is going to work. You you want a third, <laughs> your offer is like a third of what we want. So they cut bait, but you stuck with it. How did you know there was more room? Yeah, I, and that was just their first four? Yeah,
2: it's a good question. I, I didn't know, of course, for sure. I never knew. I, I mean, they, they might've never called back after, after, you know. But, you know, the fact, I think, You know, I I don't know, but I would infer that maybe when they came back with their number, they were already thinking if we meet halfway between our this number here and the number Quandel said, that's going to be acceptable to us, right? So they might have actually thought that through in the first place. Um, But the other thing I haven't mentioned is we—they were not our only suitor. So we had we had a second Mm. suitor, um, which made—I mean, infinitely. Stronger position as a as a as a company trying to sell itself when you have two um, suitors, uh, and so all the time we were we were doing the dance with Nasdaq, we were doing the dance with this other organization as well. Um, and I'll tell you an interesting thing: both those organizations sort of came at it the same way, the same same kind of numbers, same sort of way they were thinking about it, and. Way down the process, when we eventually had to choose between NASDAQ and this other organization, you wouldn't believe how close the two numbers were. They were within a percent or two of each other. Uh, what do you attribute that? Pardon? To? What do you attribute oh, that to? Oh, I think, I think that the analysis both companies were doing in terms of what is the impact to our business of adding Quandle was probably the same. Because our impact, you know, when you think about it, if you insert Quandl into Nasdaq or you insert Quandl into, you know, Bloomberg or Factset or Refinitiv, the impact's probably going to be about the same in terms of what it opens up and what it achieves for them. So it, it kind of makes sense to me in retrospect that they got to the same place. But it was just interesting because, you know, I had this thought that oh, I'll get them playing off against each other. I'll go to one and say, well, the other guy's at this point, but they both just stopped. They both were like. No, that's it. If you if the other guy goes higher, I I can I can live
1: with that. It was really interesting. How, how did you have that dance without uh, angering the other side? Because th- that's a it feels like a very uh, delicate conversation because on one hand, uh, you, you know, you, you would have a long-term working relationship with this company. If they acquired you, there might be an earnout, etc. So you're, you, you've got to have this sort of like good relationship with them. And at the same time, you know, they see you using their offer to gin up another offer. It can often anger them, right. And saying, Hey, we're, you know, we don't want to be in an auction yeah. here, Tamara. So if you're interested, great. If not, you know, uh, let's, let's, call us a day. So how did you do that without angering the other side? So the truth is, I,
2: I, they are far less emotional than me, right? For me, this is my whole life. I spent 10 years on this thing. It's going to, you know, life-changing money if it's successful. Um, for them, it's yet another acquisition. They've played this game. They know how the world works. They know it's competitive. And and we were, like both my partner and I, we, we're not – kind of grandstanders, we're not jerks, we're not assholes, we were always polite and kind. And, and ditto for NASDAQ, more so. They were so professional and so transparent, it was, you know, there was no nonsense. And so it was a very civil discussion. And at the end of the day, they understood that we were obviously trying to maximize the value uh, that, of the company. And so there was, there was no, uh, yeah, that, that didn't materialize, that sort of anger situation
1: how did trip feel about you selling
2: um, no, my vcs were supportive i mean I, I couldn't sell if they weren't i mean they they have you know part of the deal with taking vc money is um, you know they have they kind of have a lot of power that way i mean at, at the end of the day
1: they had a seat on the board and they they had do they have veto rights when you went to sell yeah
2: sure but, i mean veto rights in a, in vc world is a bit tricky right because they could veto it but you don't want it to scunling like, Unless you can replace the founders with another CEO, I mean, it's not—it's kind of a poison pill, right? But, 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 like I say, Trip was, you know, not only very supportive, but he understood that this was probably a good price at a good time, and so it wasn't going to be his 10x return the fund kind of investment. But it, you know, it was—you know—it's going to help the cause, right? I mean, he, he, it's a profitable investment for him, right? Um so so he you know he's just sensible, rational, uh and and
1: supportive. And what benchmarks was he giving you saying, Tamar, like this is what I'm seeing in the world of you know data sets information products? Was he giving you any sort of sense of what it could be worth? Nobody, like? kn- nobody knew,
2: right? There, there's no, there's no, we, we, you know, we're a new kind of business in a, in a, in an industry, this alternative data industry, but there was no such thing as that thing five years ago, right? Uh, or at least,
1: But you could have looked at like, I mean, what, what, I mean, uh, Thomson Reuters, a publicly traded company, you could have looked at their multiple, or you know, or Bloomberg, or Gartner Group. These are all information yeah. Yeah. products, all New York Stock Exchange listed companies. Yeah. I think.
2: Yeah, I mean, you could weren't there benchmarks out there? You could have true to? for sure. Yeah, there there was, and but the interesting thing there is, you know, we have this concept in um, finance called price discovery. So you can do all the all the math you want or all the analysis you want, but at the end of the day, the market is going to tell you the price. And when we had two companies kind of arrive at the same number, it 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 means way more than all the analysis you want to do in a spreadsheet. You know, do as much as you want. At the end of the day, the market seems to have decided that this is what you're worth. And so, that, you know, that was kind of the thinking.
1: What impact did that have for you and Abraham as shareholders, as founders, when the two public big big acquirers came roughly within 1% of each other. What impact did that have on your commitment to the deal? Well,
2: you know how it helped a lot because, you know, if we, if we had, let's say we'd only had one, um, we would never know if we had sold too cheap, you know, with, because, you know, maybe we could have just dug our heels in the ground, waited six months and they would have come back at, you know, 20% Twenty percent higher or thirty percent higher, but when you have a second, a, a second bidder, and they're both aware of each other, and they're both still saying, "This is the most I'm going to pay," and I know you have somebody else, and I've come to terms with the fact that we, we're we're going to lose the deal. Uh, it really tells you, okay, we found we found, quote unquote, fair value for this for this company, and so it, so it it kind of helps me. Uh, it helps me sleep at night, but it gives you some certainty that, yeah, you know what, we got the most we could get for this business.
1: And I'm hearing, if I heard you correctly, that both companies eventually tapped out, and they said that's our, yeah. you know, final yeah. offer. And if you can get more elsewhere, Tammy, Yep, you know,
2: good luck to you. Yeah, good for you. Totally, hundred percent.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's helpful for sure. Well, congratulations! It's an amazing deal. Nasdaq is an incredible company, obviously, and and uh, an amazing uh, acquirer. What are you up for? A quick lightning? Yeah, yeah. Let's do it. Okay, cool. I know you talked to lots of people, investment rounds and, and acquires. And so when I ask this question, I ask you to just cast your mind to all the way back to the earliest days of raising that first round of friends and family money right to, through to the NASDAQ acquisition. What was the slimiest, dirtiest trick an acquirer investor tried to play on you?
2: Um, n- nothing whatsoever. N- NASDAQ was the most... I mean, They were fair. They were transparent. They were straightforward. They were honest at every single point in the negotiation. And actually, one of the traps I fell into was thinking, they can't be this nice. They can't be – there's got to be something. they must be playing me somewhere here. But no, they they were just – you know, and it makes sense to me now because once I I spent two years inside that organization and I realized I learned how much NASDAQ – values integrity it's so important for their brand and you know they're not going to compromise integrity to save a million dollars on a on a deal it's just not it makes no sense in the long term so 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 it's a testament to nasdaq it's also a testament to the individuals at nasdaq who worked with us through the process they're just decent hard-working honest people so i have no You know, one slimy story, we we once had a competitor dress up as a customer to try and glean, you know, insights about how we're doing stuff. That was about the sleaziest thing we encountered over uh, over 10 years.
1: When you think about the sale process itself, when you started to have those flirtatious conversations all the way back in March of 18, through to the closing, what was the low point emotionally for you where you reached a, a kind of real bond? Um
2: There were two things. One is when I, I sort of alluded to the fact that I, I, I thought we were playing a much more sort of sophisticated game than we were. And so sometimes one time during the negotiation, negotiation, I took a hard line on something just because I thought that was what you do. Right. I, I just, and it almost blew up the whole deal. Just because, and, and Nasdaq had been honest and straightforward and they said to us, look, Tamara, honestly, this is really important to us. This is really important to us. And I was like, oh, okay, well, you know, we're, it's really important to us and I'm gonna, you know, fight this and and it was just so stupid of me. It was so stupid. I thought I was, you know, it, it, I, it's a funny little <laughs> metaphor, but you know this expression, you know, one guy's playing chess and one guy's playing checkers. Well, it's the reverse here. Nasdaq was just playing checkers. And I thought I was in this complicated chess game and I wasn't, and I so I almost shot myself in the foot. Uh, so that was a that was a low point, a sleepless night when I was blue.
1: Are you able to share? Are you able to share what the point was, was that you were digging your heels? You know in what? Up?
2: It was something about working capital. How much working capital should be left in the company? I, you know, it was just it's just stupid of me. I mean, my but what what? So Silicon Valley has one view of how working capital should be handled, and the East Coast has a different view. And it was just a religious thing. Silicon Valley thinks about it this way, and I'm being advised by two Silicon Valley VCs, and New York finance companies think about it this way. And so, it, but it, you know, it's a, it's not a big deal. But I, you know, you know the, the fog of the deal, and I'm, you know, I'm, you know, implicating lots of parties, and some people in a negotiation want me to push for more money, and some people want, and so I was, I just played it wrong. I just misread the whole thing, and I almost Blew up the whole thing, and I called. And again, to Nasdaq's credit, I called them back the next day and said, "You know, I my bad, I screwed this up." And and my counterpart there said, "Yeah, no, okay, all good. Let's keep going. Like just class, just class, <laughs> right?" So um, so that was that was that was probably the low point.
1: For for our listeners, um, could you describe how Silicon Valley VCs think about? Um working capital and how East Coast finance types think about working capital in a deal. You know,
2: so this will underscore just how how pathetic I was that I made a big deal of this, John. I don't even remember. I can't remember any of the details of that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, got it. Okay. What about the emotional high? Well describe for for our listeners the The top of the mountain. Uh, where were you? What was the emotional high associated? with Oh, for
2: sure, that? it was the day the lawyer called and said, um, "NASDAQ has instructed me to release the signatures," which is basically code for deals done. Um, and it was, it was, I was instantly, it was what a relief, right? That the when, I'd been in this process for nine months, and the thing with acquisitions and even raising VC money is. So, we had a, 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 an agreement in, in whatever, July or August, in principle, what we're going to do here. And then there's four months of diligence, and the only thing that can happen is the deal falls apart. That's all that can happen over the. And so, every single day, and, and NASDAQ, again, to their credit, was very, very thorough in their diligence. Um, spent a lot of time with us looked at everything so on every single day all I could do is going be you know, go from being successful to being a failure right that's all that could happen in those four months right and so it's you know it, that when when we finally got over the line and it was like done it was like such a tremendous relief that was by far the the high
1: where, where were you? Can you describe sort of like who you're with, what what the environment was when you got? I was, a phone it, call? was a,
2: it was mid morning on a Friday, and it, we were supposed to close that day, so it wasn't like I, I didn't, you know, I and I'm just sitting there, and I mean, there was not, I mean, I was just sitting at my desk watching the second hand go around, waiting for something like it was, we were all it was just, de- and so then the phone rang. It was my lawyer, and she said, um, "I'm just calling to let you know that Nasdaq." Um, has asked me to really or we've been instructed to release the signatures, which, you know, means it's, it's done. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, I was, I mean, I can't, you can't even describe it. I mean, you, it's like the high, the professional high of my life. I'll never, I will never have a day that good again. I can't imagine in, in professional aspects of my life.
1: Is that hard to reconcile with now?
2: I'm sorry. Is it hard to reconcile
1: is it hard to reconcile with i mean let me ask it a different way as a few years have gone by now since that moment where your Laura called and she said okay i've been instructed to release the signatures so you've come to realize that you will never likely have that sort of emotional high as you had and that for a lot of founders can be hard yeah dealing with that yeah it, it,
2: uh, yeah, I'm OK with that. I mean, listen, there's not a day that has gone by since then where I'm not uh, grateful and appreciative of the situation I'm in now. Right. I mean, it. I'm in a very good place. I, I ain't got nothing to complain about, John. I mean, I'll find some things to complain about. But I know no business complaining. I'm in a really good place. <laughs> Um, so I appreciate it. Like I walked, I was euphoric for weeks after that. I mean, it was just I was so happy, and obviously I wish I could have that feeling forever. But I, you know, you get used to this new normal, which it's a delightful normal. Um, and like I said, I appreciate, like always, appreciate it. Um, and but I'd love to do it again. I mean, don't get me wrong; I would love to, you know, not so much. I mean, an exit one day would be great too. But I, you know, I did the, did this once. And it was difficult and terrifying, and I made ten thousand mistakes, and but eventually got to the end. I, I I would be so tempted to do it again because I'm almost certain I can do it better the second time, right? If I find the right thing, you know, the right opportunity.
1: Yeah, that's one of the, one of the things I say to, to young founders. I say go through an exit because you'll make all the mistakes in the world the first time and then you'll have plenty of runway to go do it again. And then, you know, maximize whatever. So I'm a big fan of having a training wheels business and, and exiting it and, and moving on. Were there resources that you turned to Tamar, um, books that you could point our audience to or courses or anything that you could sort of uh, point our listeners to in the way of um, tools to help them get ready for an exit. Uh,
2: short answer is no. I relied very heavily on basically my partner Abraham Thomas, who um, is exceptionally knowledgeable about all things uh, entrepreneurial, um, and my and Trip Jones, who who's you know for him it's just another acquisition, right? He's done it a whole bunch of times, and he kind of coached us through it. So I, it was those two people uh, who I relied on the most. I'm, uh, for better or for worse, I tend to be more about just dive into the deep end and figure it out as I go as opposed <laughs> to uh, uh, you know, studying the literature.
1: Yeah, when you get the new bookcase, you, you throw out the instructions and just start That's assembling. 100%. <laughs> Got it. Last question. Tell me about the trophy you bought yourself to commemorate this win.
2: Um, Okay, so I have two kids uh, who were toddlers when we started Quandl. And over the years of Quandl, they would ask me some things, and very often I'd say, well, we we might do that one day if Quandl's successful. And it became this thing is if Quandl's successful, good things will happen. So they didn't know what that really meant, okay, because they're just little kids, right? Um, And so, you know, when we sold the business, I was I was over the moon as I said, and I wanted to find a way um, for my kids to experience that happiness, right? And one of the things I had said uh, that we do if Quantum was successful, not that we couldn't afford it otherwise, but there's a ta- there's a tower in Toronto it's called the CN Tower, big second or third sure. tallest tower in the world. And it's
1: was the tallest for a period of time.
2: Yeah, it was the tallest for a while, right? And it's it's a touristy gimmick, but my kids had said, Oh, let's go there's a restaurant that revolves or and I, I said to them Oh, if Quandel's successful, we'll go to the CN Tower and 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 you know and so I was like, okay, we're going to the CN Tower, and so that was the trophy. And I spent, you know, four family of four for dinner. My father-in-law was there, five of us. It was like six hundred dollars. The chicken fingers were like fifty dollars for the kids' menu. It was ridiculous, really absurd. But that was my trophy. I indulged on a kind of corny dinner at the CN Tower with my family. You got off cheap, buddy.
1: <laughs> That's great. They'll remember that dinner for life, I'm sure. That's the the point. They better. Yeah, totally. Oh, well, this is great. I'm so thrilled that you uh, you got to the CN Tower and they, <laughs> and they got to experience that. That's great. Well, listen, um, I know people are going to want to reach out and say hi and, and and get to know you. What's the best way for them to do it? Are you a Twitter guy or LinkedIn or what's the best sort of medium?
2: Yeah, find me on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm always keen to have conversations about
1: entrepreneurship. Fantastic. And wonderful. so we'll put uh, Tamar's uh, profile link in the show notes at BuiltTheSell.com. And I uh, encourage you to reach out and, uh, and get to know Tamar. Tamar, thanks for doing this. Oh, it was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me, John.
0: And there you have it for today's podcast between Tamar and John. If you enjoyed today's show, as always, be sure you hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. If you love today's episode and want to help support the show, you can do so by leaving a rating review over an Apple podcast. And if you want to watch this full interview, I would encourage you to, to subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is at Built to Sell Radio. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including the video I mentioned at the start of the episode, go ahead and visit our show notes page, which can be found over at builttosell.com. Special thanks to Scribe Media for sponsoring today's episode and to Dennis Labitagula for handling today's audio and video engineering. I also want to thank our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. I look forward to talking to you again next week.